You're listening to the Grace Covenant East Lincoln Audio Podcast. Um, can you believe it's been, uh, this is our eighth week in our study of James. It's eight, eight weeks. H- have you been challenged by this study? Just raise your hand if you've been challenged. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the past seven weeks, James has confronted us with his very practical yet challenging words about true faith. And uh, we've seen that his words at times can be strong, they can be stern, sometimes a bit fatherly as he's moving us towards the goal of understanding what uh, true faith really looks like. And as he contends for this, as he's contended for it all throughout uh, the chapters that we've looked at, um, he's helped us to understand that true faith is more than head knowledge, right? Instead, it's rooted in the heart. It's not just held up here, but true faith is rooted in the heart. And James has helped us to see that uh, true faith is not just something that we believe, but true faith is something that's lived out. We live it out in our lives. True faith is the expression of Jesus in our lives. Um, True faith is seen in our changed lives, and that's because the presence of Jesus, listen to this, we've said it several times, but the presence of Jesus always, 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 always makes a difference, right? It makes a difference in how we live, in how we think, and how we believe. True faith is the expression of Jesus in our lives. Um, James has taught us that true faith is seen in how we respond to trials and challenges. And he's taught us that true faith is seen in how we treat other people. And true faith is seen in the words that we speak. And then last week we saw that true faith is even seen in, in how we plan for the future. And today we're going to find James continuing to use this straight shooter, strong, stern set of words, uh, even... Even today, we're going to find his his words are just a little bit harsh, but it would appear that the words that we're going to read today are um, really to a, he takes a turn. They're to a little bit of a different audience. So if you'll get your teaching notes in hand, and if you'll open up your Bibles to James chapter 5, we're going to be looking at uh, six verses there. And um, while you're doing that, um, I want to draw a little bit from history, a story from history to kind of set the tone for the message this morning. Um, Imelda Marcos, maybe many of you remember Imelda Marcos. Imelda Marcos served as the first lady of the Philippines for some 21 years. Um, During that time, she and her husband, um, uh, Ferdinand, stole billions of dollars from the Filipino people. They, uh, they took advantage of the people. They abused the people. There was a misuse of power. And by the time they were deposed in 1986, they had acquired a fortune that was estimated to be worth some between 5 and 10 billion U.S. dollars. And that's all from taking advantage of, of the people that she was, that she was serving. Um, after Imelda Marcos and her husband Ferdinand were deposed, uh, Time, uh, a Newsweek magazine actually ran a story on what they classified as a story of her pathetic life. And they said that when she and her husband fled the country, that she left behind uh, some 3,000 pairs of shoes in her closet. And that's kind of what we mostly remember her. She had 3,000 pairs of shoes in her closet. Um, she had a shelf. There were five shelves stuffed with 
uh, unused Gucci handbags. They were still stuffed with paper, and they had the price tags on it. She had uh, large bottles of perfume. They said there were more than 500 different kinds of undergarments, and there were vats of Christian Dior wrinkle cream. Um, uh, vanity. Uh, uh, it was said that she would be able to make a trip to Switzerland and spend $12 million in one day on jewelry. $12 million in one day on jewelry. There was a U.S. representative who, uh, the story says, he gawked at all that she had, and he said, this is the worst case of um, conspicuous consumerism that I've ever seen. And I think if we had seen it, we would probably agree with him. You know, it's... uh, Honestly, when we think of Imelda Marcos, though, the thing that we typically think of is that she had 3,000 pairs of shoes. I mean, that just seems to be the thing that that stands out. But I want to say that the story of Imelda Marcos is much more than a story of 3,000 pairs of shoes. It's a story of the abuse of power. It's the story of the abuse of people. It's the, the story of the misuse of wealth. It's a story of greed. And interestingly enough, as we look in the first six verses of James chapter 5, that's exactly the kind of thing that James deals with. That's what he's going to deal with today as we look at these six verses. So I want you to, we're going to step right into the passage and see what James has to say. So I want you to follow along as I read uh, those uh, uh, six verses. So what I'll do is I'll read the six verses, and then I'm going to go through and I'm going to talk about them, and then we're going to see how we can pull some application out of it. So uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail. This is harsh language. I'm going to say, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who moved into your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So... Um, uh, I think as we begin to try to understand these verses, we have to ask, um, who, who is it that James is talking to? Who, who is he addressing? So, because so far we know that throughout the letter, James has been addressing the, the Jewish believers who have been scattered, but that doesn't seem to be the case in these six verses. Um, there's, there's debate. If you begin to study this passage, there's debate against uh, or among many commentators, but the most widely held belief is that James is talking, he's addressing a non uh, believing wealthy group of oppressors who are taking advantage of the people. Um, uh, he, he, uh, there's, there's a defrauding, there's, there's a deceit that's happening. In the time frame when James wrote this letter, it was common for there to be um, landowners who held large portions of land all throughout the countryside. They controlled the land. And uh, the locals would work for these large uh, landholders, and they were dependent on them for their, their well-being, their, their livelihood. And so uh, what James is addressing,
addressing is that these landowners were guilty of defrauding or deceiving them out of their earnings. They weren't paying them uh, what what they were owed. They were working hard and they weren't getting their wages. So as chapter 5 begins, we find James warning these wealthy non-Christian landowners about the hopelessness and the worthlessness of their wealth, of their riches. James is confronting those who are pursuing wealth at the cost of others, at the expense of others. They're self-consumed and they're driven by getting more and more and more and more. And their wealth has blinded them to what really matters. So true to form, as we've seen in the past weeks, James does not meander into this confrontation. He doesn't waste any words. He steps right in. And in verse 1, he says, now listen. Now listen. He's calling for their attention. Now listen. And it's interesting because these are the same words that when we looked at uh, James chapter 4 last week, verses 13 through 17, that's how he began verse 13. Now listen. And so there's the same, in this now listen, in chapter 5, verse 1, there's this same forcefulness. There's this same urgency. Now listen. Now, now listen. Um, uh, there's a, it's as if his, his words are falling like hammer blows. They're blunt and they're unsparing. And what he's saying is, now listen. I'm telling you, stop and listen. I, I want you to think. I want you to think about what you're doing. I want you to think about the trouble and the misery that's ahead of you because of your attitude and your actions about your wealth. In the New Living Translation, it says, Look here, you rich people. (laughs) Weep and groan with anguish because of the terrible trouble ahead of you. So throughout the letter, as James addresses the Jewish uh, believers Every time in his address for them, it's a call to repentance. This is happening, and you need to change your way. But again, that's not the case here. Instead, in verse 1, we find that there's an announcement of judgment. So he's, he's pronouncing judgment on these non-believing landowners. I want you to imagine James saying this, kind of rolling up his sleeves and saying, because of the way that you've treated or mistreated these people that are not of the same wealth status of you, your sentence has been set. And it's one of trouble, and it's one of misery, and it has been set. It's going to happen. In other words, he said, you're going to reap. You're going to reap what you're sowing. It's going to come back at you. And then in verse 2 and 3, as we read it, it's one of those times where we see James drawing from the teachings of his half-brother Jesus. Um, and, and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, if we read in, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And here we see James talking about rotted wealth moth-eaten clothes, and gold that's going to tarnish. So he's drawing from the teaching. So thinking back to the time again when James wrote this letter, um, the, the wealthy people could show their wealth in, in at least three different ways. Uh, they could display their wealth in their, their lavish feasting. It was actually in the food. They, they would throw these banquets with this 
fancy food, and, and it was one of the ways that they were showing off their wealth. Another way that they would show off their wealth was by the extravagant way that they dressed, this, these just clothes that were just almost outlandish. Or a third way that they would uh, display or show off their wealth is by wild spending. Just spending, 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 spending. And James is actually pointing out these three areas of the flamboyant lifestyles of these kind of rich and famous people. And the point that he's making is to them, he's saying, it is foolish for you to focus your lives on these things. It's foolish for you to focus your life because really with the lapse of time, with use or with misuse, guess what? Your food's going to rot. Your clothes are going to wear out, and and your precious metals, your gold, your silver, whatever you have, your assets, it's it's not going to be valuable anymore. It's it's going to waste away. So why, he's saying, so why would you focus on these things? And then in the latter part of verse 3, as we read it, not only does he point out the inadequacy of their wealth, but he says, your wealth is going to actually, in the end, it's going to testify against you. Because your, 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 your food is going to rot and, and, and your clothes will be worn out and, and your precious metals are going to tarnish, that they will serve as a witness in a case against you. And the witness is they're showing you how foolish it is, the inadequacy of your wealth. It's not going to last. He says your corruption, your corrosion will testify against you. And then he adds this. He says, it will eat your flesh like a fire. It will eat your flesh like a fire. As I was preparing this, I thought, wow, those, are, those eight words, they're really relevant to us. Um, there's a message to all of us in those eight words. If we make our things, if we make our possessions, our focus, our God, they will require much of us mentally emotionally, and physically. Has anybody ever experienced that? When we have things, they require, they, they require a lot of us. Uh, those possessions, those things have the ability to rob us of the quality of life and the joy of life that, that God has planned for us. In other words, they promise joy, but in the end, they actually... And, and this isn't a message against not, uh, don't, don't have nice things. That, that's it. The message is that we can't focus. We can't make those things our God. Uh, they become the catalyst for stress and worry and anxiety and even physical ailment. That's why we can't make our possessions. I think we can become enslaved to our possessions. Listen to this. We can love our things, but I want to tell you, they don't necessarily love us back. Right? They, they don't love us back because they're requiring, they're requiring something of us. They're requiring something of our money. They're requiring something of our time. They're putting demands on us. And so within this message, if we even say, how does this apply to us? We can just say, okay, I have to be careful that I don't make my things the focus of my life, that I don't make my possessions my God. Um, in verse 4, we see, uh, as we read, that he uses that forceful, urgent language again. He says, look. Look. And the intent more so than look is he's saying, listen, you rich people. And here's what he wants them to hear. You've mistreated your workers. You've exercised the power of your wealth over them. And you think that they are powerless to fight back. That's what you think. You think that you are all powerful. 
and, and you've exercised your power over them, and you think their hands are tied, there's not anything. And he's saying, but here's the deal. That's not the case. Because these people that you are oppressing, they've been calling out to God Almighty. And God Almighty, the God of the heavenly armies, this Lord Sabios, the God of the heavenly armies, he's aware and he's fighting on their behalf. They're not powerless. In fact, they have the power of the almighty God. And so this morning, as we're looking for points of application in this message, let me ask you, is there a circumstance, is there a situation in your life that's been holding you down, holding you back? Is there something going on Is there something that's been oppressing you and it's been working to try to convince you that your situation is hopeless, that there's no way out? If that's true, then you need to recognize that that's deceit and that deceit comes from a source. It comes from the enemy of our souls, the one who lies, the one who deceives, the one who does not want to see us um, experience all that God has for us. But here's what I would say today. Your situation is not hopeless. Uh, It's not going to overtake you. It's not going to overcome you because you keep calling out to God Almighty. He's he's listening. The, The God of the heavenly armies has already dispatched his heavenly warriors, and your situation is being worked out. He's fighting on your behalf. You may not see it, but you can count on that. So don't give in to hopelessness. Don't give in to despair. Uh, don't listen to the lie because God's power is on your side. And then uh, it's in verses 5 and 6 that he actually calls them out. And as he calls them out, he says, You have condemned and murdered people who have God's approval, even though they didn't resist you. What's his point? Well, he's saying, much of your wealth has come at the expense of others. You have oppressed the weak, even even to the point of death. You've taken advantage of them because you believe that in themselves they are powerless to resist you. And you're going to reap what you've sown. Again, they're not powerless. He's He's reminding the oppressors. They're not powerless. God is fighting on their side. So it, 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 the, the pronouncement of judgment that he's placing on them is that your wealth, your possessions that you place so much um, focus on, care in, that, that you nurture, they're going to testify against you. And, and, and the sentence has already been set because you're abusing people with your power, it's going to come back on you. So how do we take how do we take those six verses and how do we take them and somehow apply them to our lives? Because again, he was talking to a group of um, non-believing wealthy landowners, and um, not to devalue anyone in this room, but I don't think we have that issue in the room. I don't think there's any um, uh, land barons in the room who are abusing people and oppressing. So uh, how do you take this 
and how do you how do you deal with it? Because James is actually dealing with 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 richness, rich, riches, and and so you might say, well, if James is confronting rich people, I, I'm not rich, so it's not a problem. But let me say this: if you earn thirty seven thousand dollars or more per year, you are considered to be in the top four percent of wealth of of earner wealth earners in the in the in the world. $37,000 or more, that you're in the top 4%. So that changes the perspective, right? That, that, that changes the perspective. And then when we think about what James has wrote to these uh, non-believing wealthy landowners, um, our wealth isn't really seen in our lavish food selections. I mean, we might have lavish food selections, but it doesn't mean we're wealthy. And it's not seen in the in the great clothing that we wear and it's nothing else that puts us in debt, right? Uh, and, and it's not necessarily, our wealth isn't seen by our uh, foolish, wild spending. That, that's really putting us in debt instead of causing us to be rich. So our wealth is measured in terms of our assets or more specifically our money. And so, um, can I just tell you something? I, I always... I, as a pastor, I do. I, I, I always, if I can get out of the messages on money, I, I say, can I not be there that day? <laughs> I, I, honestly, I just, I don't like, I don't like to teach about money. Even though in the New Testament, so much of what Jesus teaches is, is about money, it's just not my favorite thing to teach about. So let me go ahead and say, this is not a message. This ending of the message is not about getting you to give more to the church, but instead, it's this: we have to recognize that everything that we have belongs to God, right? Everything we have. It's not really ours. He's entrusted us with it. So our money is God's money. That's the bottom line. He's given us his money to steward and to steward well. And uh, and the goal, the intent that he has for it is that we would be people who are using the money that we have to store up treasure in heaven. We're making eternal investments. So, so that's what this is about. So I'm not going to pass the offering plate at the end or anything like that. Um, you and what you give to the church, that's between you and God, okay? Um, so I just want to make sure you understand that. But, but we do have to look at this. as If we're going to pull some personal application in it, it's about how we um, handle the money that God's given us. So I think the first thing we have to recognize is James didn't call out wealth. That wasn't the problem. He was, he was calling out the mishandling of wealth. And likewise, for us, money isn't the issue, but it's how we handle our money. Uh, money is neutral. The Scripture doesn't say money is evil. What does the Scripture say about money? It's the love, the love of money. So it's back to when you focus your attention on your possessions and you fall in love with your possessions. The wealthy that James called out, um, they got their money through exploitation. They exploited their workers from their wages. And so um, I think as we're pulling out application, then we have to say, okay, um, for us, application is in how we get, how we get our money. In other words, to me, this is a message about character and integrity and honesty. Um, if we get our money through exploitation, just like these people, our money's going to testify against us in the end. 
It, it really will. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11, it says, Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. So we have to make sure that we're getting our money the right way. True faith is mindful of how we get our money. True faith does not tolerate dishonest gain. Remember, we're saying, what does true faith look like? Uh, The wealthy that James called out had a selfish guard on their money. They leveraged it for selfish gain. And James warned them, because of this misery, trouble, is waiting on you. And so we begin to pull out. What does that mean for us? Well, selfish, guarded wealth will promise joy, but it only brings misery. In the end, it brings misery. When we begin to love money, it ceases to bless us, and it begins to curse us. Think about the Marcos family. So in the end, their, their possessions, their money was a testimony against them. And when they, deposed, when they were deposed from the company, do you think that those who were deposing me said, oh, yeah, there's a U-Haul behind uh, the trailer taking you out, and it's got all your 5 to 10 billion U.S. dollars in it. Oh, yeah, and here's the 3,000 pairs of shoes. No, they, they worked to acquire all of this, and then it testified against them. They, they couldn't take it with them. They, they were unable to. True faith is mindful of how we guard our money. Rather than guarding it for selfish gain, we guard it with a mindset of storing up treasure in heaven. So it's all about eternity. It's all about eternity. And finally, the wealthy that James calls out, uh, they excelled in guarding but not giving. They excelled in guarding but not giving. So true faith displays the opposite. True faith is evidenced in how we give. True faith is seen in our generosity. True faith understands that it's not what we guard, but what we give that makes us rich. True faith allows God's goods to flow through our lives so that we can be His conduits of blessing. This is, listen, as we're handling what God has entrusted us with, there's a principle in Scripture of generosity that God gives to us, and as He gives to us, we out of generosity, we give away. And then what does God do? He gives back to us, and we give. And there's a multitude of ways that we can give and make that money uh, store up treasure in heaven. But we never have to go without. There's always a supply. And for Cammie and I, we've seen that in all the years of our marriage. We've seen it all throughout our lives that we never go without. When we know that what we have belongs to God, and we recognize we're stewarding His goods, for eternity. Amen? Amen. So uh, why don't you stand and uh, we'll pray. Father, um, again, we thank you for James. We thank you for uh, these uh, words that we've learned over the past weeks. Um, we thank you that... Uh, They've been cutting to our heart and transforming how we live. And even today, though he was writing, just took a detour, writing to just a bit of a different audience, that we can take those words and we can say, God, don't ever let that happen to me. Don't ever, don't ever, may I never fall in love with my possessions. May I never guard selfishly what you've given to me, but may I 
live generously, sowing into your kingdom, sowing in eternity. Father God, if there's just anybody here and they're just saying, you know, I'm struggling, I'm struggling because I really do like my stuff. I pray that you would just today help them to, um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to just have a different perspective and walk them through the processes that need to be walked through. And while you're standing with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just a question that I ask every week. Is there anybody here and you've never opened up your heart, your life to Jesus? You've never said, Jesus, I belong to you. Uh, And today you want to say yes to Jesus. You want to say yes to salvation. Is there anybody here today? And if so, would you just lift up your hand and let your eyes catch my eyes? Anybody? Anybody saying, today I want to just accept Jesus as my Savior? Father, thank you for this incredible group of people in this place today. As they go out today, I pray that you bless them and that you bless them in every way. I pray that they know you and know you more and that as they go, they sow seeds of eternity into the lives of the people that they meet. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. We're so glad you're here today. And we'll see you throughout the week. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.